Hello, Foibles listeners. Today, we are going to tell you about a man named Rodolfo Alfonso Raffaello Piere Filiberto Guglielmi di Valentina de Antugueya. A.K.A. A.K.A. Otherwise known as... Rudolph Valentino. Now, you've probably heard the name, even if you don't know well, who this not, is. I don't know. I Somebody at work who was just about your age, I said, have you heard... Just checking out. Oh, we're doing a podcast on Rudolph Valentino. He goes, never heard of him. What? <laughs> well, so, good question. If you haven't heard of Rudolph Valentino, then you should. You're in for a treat. He was one of the, probably the most famous people of the 20th century, would you say? I would say, certainly in the first half of the 20th century, even into my days, uh, people of my generation, uh, I don't think there's anybody who hadn't heard the name and didn't kind of know who he was, even if they didn't have any idea of details or anything like that. And even his image was really pretty, still well known. But it seems like your generation is uh, woefully ignorant on this issue. So I guess you might be able to guess that Rudolph Valentino is related to film in some way. He was an actor. He was an actor. He's really, I'm going to say right up front, I think he was a great actor. He doesn't get the credit for that because he was a silent screen actor and he died very young at the age of 31. He was born in 1895, died in 1926 of peritonitis. And once we get to the end of the story, we'll... Fill you in on all the details of that, but he was born in Italy, not in a rural area, but not in a big city either. It was more kind of a town, and he lived there uh, with his family, just like any regular person, and then he became an immigrant and came to the United States, and he made his way uh, to filmdom, as so many people did at that time, and because of his enormous charisma and his good looks, his talent and his physical abilities, he became a huge star, huge star. And so we're going to kind of start at the beginning here and go through. He had a fascinating life. He played in films where he was uh, bigger than life characters, very heroic or very evil or whatever. And he was just big. And in his life, in his personal life, he was that way too. He wasn't the same as the characters he played. It, there was not an equation there. He was acting and it, acting very well. But his life was so large and so full, so full of incident packed into those 31 years. I think you'll just find this fascinating. It's incredible. He's truly a like a romantic hero in his own life too. He, yeah. yeah, he really is. And, and his death at the age of 31 adds romance to that because he didn't he didn't fade he didn't become old i think he'll come back i think he'll be rediscovered because of the power of his personality and his charisma i feel like to me he equates a great deal with say marilyn monroe we did a whole series on marilyn so you know what we think of her and how much we love her uh, was a very intelligent talented human being who had a lot of foibles and a lot of character weaknesses but what she was able to project onto the screen, there was some space between her eyes, her energy, and the, the camera that she was able to fill with this archetypal, powerful energy that just is far more than, than the sum of just herself and the camera. It's herself, the camera, the audience, all that she was just able to kind of conduct this energy into the world in such an amazing, powerful way. 
that was separate from her. It's her as an artist, separate from her as a person. And Valentino, same thing. Because Val- Valentino was very good looking, but really there were a lot of other people who were as good looking as he was. But there's something between those eyes and that body and that energy and, and the camera. And then from that camera into the eyes and hearts of the audience that was so powerful that he created this archetype of the, I would say, the dark lover archetype. Even though he played more than the dark lover. But that was it's so deliciously powerful that I, as you can tell, I'm in love with Rudy. Now, I've noticed that I fall in love with the characters as I'm, as I'm researching them and I get obsessed with them. And Zoe, what is it? Every day you come, you know, you come out, you get up. <laughs> I'm trying to brush my teeth at 11 p.m. at night and you come stand in the doorway and you're like, okay, so when Rudy was uh, 11, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I did that with Barbara, with Babs and Errol and Marlena. Yeah. It's like, oh, I become very obsessed with these people. But, but that's the fun of research, right? The right. fun of history. So basically, we're going to start out, uh, and there's going to be a lot of history in this. This will probably be—I um, bet it'll be four parts. Easily, we're going to have to—we're going to have to be disciplined. To yeah, we'll do our best to, to be disciplined. Parts. But it's not just because of him and the fascination with him. It's he was active and working at a really interesting time in American history. Very, very interesting time in the early 20th, you know, like from 1900. Well, he was actually working more like from like 1919 to 1926. And then before that, he was in New York. A very interesting time in history. A lot of things going on. And also, he seemed to unwillingly fall into... He, he just is a pivotal character to be able to discuss the patriarchy and toxic masculinity and what that force did to him. And it's very, very fascinating. So we probably will talk a bunch about that. But uh, we'll let you get to know him first. And then you'll care. Right? Right. Well, I uh, was raised at a time in the... I'll just say how old I am. How Should I just fess up here? I mean, does anybody... I, I don't understand people that care. Like, I, I mean, I guess I'm still young, but yeah. I just don't understand why I, I don't. I don't really age. either. Well, you don't until you get As older. When you get... You don't until you get older and people look at you and see how old you are and then they don't listen to you. That you can just see them discount you and, be, and it's like energy and interest just kind of like slide off you so and how the things you say don't matter yeah no i totally get that but people that don't want to reveal that they're 52 Mm. or you know 65 Mm. or whatever the number is so i was born in 1958 so in the 60s and 70s when i was young that the style what was to laugh at old tiny silent movies because of the oh the crazy gestures they made and so so stupid and bad and how all that acting was just so bad and silly and you know to deride it now today some people still do that but really the understanding that this first of all these people were very skilled and they were creating and 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 innovating in a way that's just marvelous but also that these actors who were doing these large gestures and so forth, that was a style. That was, you know, it's like saying, oh, you know, ballet is so stupid. It's so, look at how they stick their leg in the air. Isn't that ridiculous? Rather than going, well, maybe I don't care for that style. But wow, that technique is amazing. And those people really are talented. That became a, a revelation and a growth to me as I got older and was watching these things and going, yeah, but these people are really good. And I had seen Rudolph Valentino when I was young, like your age, and thought, oh, wow, he's still kind of hot. I could see why he was such a, 
uh, women, I mean, he just was the lover. He was called the Latin lover, which he hated. I just wanted to drop in and say, I'm, I think we should just name a few of the movies that he was most famous for, just in case people have heard of them. Yeah, go right ahead. So the biggest part of his reputation as a sort of exotic lover and everything came from probably Blood and Sand, in which he played a matador, and the Sheik movies, um, The Son of the Sheik being the second one, where he played um, an Arabian, well, he's... And he's adopted by the Arabs. Yeah. He's, he, does, he plays a European man in those two. But yeah, he, he, play, he plays an Arab in quotes until the very end when you find out, oh, his parents actually were European. <laughs> right. Because of the mis- anti-miscegenation laws. But um, those are probably the most his most famous roles. So if you've heard of those movies, or if you've heard of him, you've heard of those movies. And he was like um, the Beatles uh, all enrolled into one. And when you talk about the screaming and the you know people ripping his clothes and just the insanity around him that was going on in his in his world, so he was that famous. I mean, total complete superstar. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And with women, not with men. It right. was like the country split on gender lines. Now there may have been gay men who liked him, and you know people who were maybe gender fluid who really liked him, but those people didn't have a voice at the time. So we kind of are going to be talking sort of binary here a lot with him. But know that you know we're aware that there are a lot of other people who might have had something to say about him if they'd had a chance. What's interesting is, is he was such an icon, sex god, love god, whatever. But he said of himself, he said, women are not in love with me, but with a picture of me on the screen. I am merely the canvas upon which the women paint their dreams. A man's most coveted audience is a woman. Her approbation, the ultimate laurel wreath. So now you understand why. I mean, that just gives me shivers. I'm like, oh, yes. (laughs) You are so hot. (laughs) He had this feeling himself, and he brought it to the screen. And he also had the perfect body of, like, a young god. And he was handsome. So, I mean, he had everything to bring to the screen. But it really wasn't until, like, this, we began doing this investigation. I really started looking at him and I went, wow, what a talented person. What an interesting person. So what about you, though? Did you know anything about Valentino before we started this project? I mean, I did because you had me watch The Sheik and The Son of the Sheik with you when I was maybe in middle school mm. or so. And that was probably the first time I'd heard of Rudolph Valentino, but you... You know, you were like, he's he's so famous, so important for you to know in your film education. So ever since then, I've been aware, um, but never really thought to delve further into his movies. And I'm really glad we did because there are some total gems and we'll talk a lot more about his acting style, but it is very interesting to take a mature perspective because his acting style is very different from a lot of the other silent actors acting styles out there well and i don't know if i guess i'll bring it up now because even though i try to save things so they come in chronological order but the fact is is that his acting style was somewhat different but it was a great deal more modern than most people who were acting at the time and that was because when he came over to the united states uh, and went to hollywood he was exposed to the teachings of stanislavski Now, Stanislavski, for those of you who maybe aren't aware of this, he was an acting teacher in Russia who was breaking the bounds, as a lot of artists were in all different levels. For some reason, Russia was a really 
important place of the old style acting where there was it was declamatory there was a gesture like a vocabulary of gesture that you learned that if you put your hand to your head it means this and if you're you know telling someone to go you put your arm out and you point and it's basically mime which that came from the french theater and going far back is that you mimed and you spoke and you declaimed and it was very, and the point was is to be loud and to be powerful and that was what moved people. They weren't looking for emotional verisimilitude. They weren't looking for reality on the stage. And Stanislavski kind of broke through that and his point of view uh, regarding acting anyway, was that you're trying to elicit a real emotional Sympathy, sympathy and 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 presence you know you're not you're not up there declaiming you're trying to be present emotionally uh you're trying to create you know tears and laughter and things that that are authentic that you're trying to create an authenticity i guess would be the word and that uh was brought over here and then taught and became known as the method in, in one case, and different teachers came and they taught different things. Like Brando was a, ma- uh, Marlon Brando was a method actor. You James Jean. Marilyn Monroe, I think. Mar- yeah. Oh, Marilyn Monroe studied it. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. And they taught different things. This is where I'm going to be disciplined. I won't get into the different schools. At this point, we're still at the, at the root that Rudy learned these things. And so when he took on a role, he became immersed in the role. For some of his performances, he actually stayed in that character 24 hours a day. Now we're talking Daniel Day-Lewis stuff here. Hmm. And he did research and he would read the book and he would delve in and he would look at the costumes and he wanted everything to be real and authentic and grounded, which was one of the problems he had with the film studios. That's one of the things that makes his performances hold up today, even though the style, there are certain stylistic things that he would do and mime things, which he was directed to do. Yeah, depending on the director, you can see him be more broad or more refined, but more natural. Exactly. But when he was kind of left to himself and kind of directed more from an emotional point of view, and we will point these performances out to you, he was very natural and had very little of that old-timey look. But it, it, it seems like directors would say, oh, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. And so he, he would do it, and he would do it with all the, if the force of his will. But I think if he'd been left more to be allowed to create his own performances, it would have been really amazing. Yeah, so we got on that because you asked me whether I'd heard about Rud- Rudolph Valentino before this project, and... Yes, only because we watched The Sheik and The uh, Son of the Sheik. So we watched those together, and I really enjoyed them. And it was probably also a couple of the first silent films that we really watched at all together. And those are, you know, sweeping romance adventure movies. And I can really see how important they were in creating the archetypal, exotic, kidnapped romance trope of a movie too and then we'll get into talking about those two a lot more because they're quite interesting but Rudy was very powerful and he was really hot well today it isn't sure exactly how many films Rudy was in because he started at the very very beginning when films were just beginning to be feature-length films and so forth and so in the early very early days in like 19... 15, 16, 17, he probably quite possibly appeared as extras in a number of films, but they don't exist anymore and nobody knows whether he was really in them. So of the 39 known films that we know he was in, in any capacity at all, there are 15 
there are only 15 that are actually still in existence. So more than half of his films are missing. And that is quite a lot. That is really a shame. Although they are still rediscovering films too. So there's hope that we'll get to see more of them in the future. Yeah, occasionally they do find one. Every now and then they find some old films that they're able to resuscitate. Also, this is just an aside, but we're going to be calling him Rudy most of the time because it's so much easier to say and because of our affection for Rudolph Valentino, but apparently he liked that nickname, so it is respectful. Yeah, he signed himself Rudy. So anyway, he was born in 1895 in Italy, as we said, and he was born to Giovanni and Gabriella Guglielmi. First they had a a little girl, she died very, very young, and then uh, they had the older brother, Alberto, and then they had Rodolfo, and then Maria, and they all survived into adulthood. And um, his mother was French, which is interesting because she was apparently very gentle. She was beautiful, according to... I've seen a picture of her. She's not really beautiful. Sorry. <laughs> he thought she was beautiful, as he should, as the child. There, are, there is a photograph extant of her. But she was uh, apparently quite artistic. She made things. She was a lace maker. She was a very good cook. But everything was very refined, apparently, according to Rodolfo. Uh, he... Uh, admired her. He loved her. She was very loving to him. And he even said, I was her most troublesome child and her favorite, which is true. By all accounts, she uh, just adored him and cosseted him. She only spoke French to the children. So he was fluent in French, fluent in Italian. He ended up learning to be able to speak Spanish and became very fluent in English as well. So he spoke four languages ultimately. And uh, he was a rapscallion as a young kid. I think he had ADHD. I think it's pretty clear. Couldn't sit still. I don't know if he was dyslexic or not, but he had trouble. He didn't like to read. You know, he wanted to be outside. He wanted to be doing physical things all the time. And, uh, and he was physically very adept, too. So he was a tree climber and would run around. And he would steal fruit from people's fruit trees. And he would pull tricks. And he was just kind of a bad boy. Like, he would sit up in the lemon tree and he would throw lemons at his sister. <laughs> and she adored him, the younger sister, and she would follow him. And, and he was always getting into trouble. Now, his father was a... He wanted to be a human doctor, but they didn't have the money, so he ended up going to veterinary school instead. And his father became a veterinarian, so he was a science guy. And he was also a scientist, and not only did he treat animals, the goal of his scientific life was to find a find out the causes and the cures for malaria in animals. Now, I didn't know that cows and pigs and so could get malaria, but apparently they can. Interesting. And malaria is a big problem in Italy. I don't know if people are that aware of it, especially in Rome. I guess there are a lot of swamps there. It gets hot. But uh, malaria is very bad, very bad in Italy, and they didn't have any antibiotics or treatments or anything at the time so you it was really devastating to have all these animals dying and so that was the father's purpose in life so uh little rudolfo uh, was really his mother's child in terms of the father did not get him alberto could sit and read books and got a's in school or whatever they gave them and he did very well and so alberto and daddy got along just fine but rudolfo was not what his his father i think didn't understand him and this is old timey times so this is when the spare the rod spoil the child edict was in place this is where the hard 
masculine discipline was in place. So when Rodolfo would do something wrong, like he would break a window, or one time he was caught you know, fiddling with his father's microscope, and they were never supposed to go in the lab. He would do these transgressions, which is really, really came out of a curiosity and just an overabundance of energy. His father would cane him, he'd take the whip, and he would whip him. And even though later in life, Rudy said, I would look back and I would see tears in my father's eyes. He, he, you know, he hated doing this. That's kind of a hindsight because his father would whip him really, I mean, really would beat him. And so what would happen was his mother then would, on the other hand, she would hide him or if he was beaten and whatever, she would comfort him. And there was something about the polarity of the parents that really set him up, I think, for with a lot of the problems he had later in his life, where his father, the male, was so autocratic and so brutal and so lack of, lacking in any kind of sympathy or understanding or attempt to do so with his son. And the mother was too much that way. So he could do anything and it would be okay with his mother. She never gave him discipline or boundaries because she was trying to make up for the brutality that he, that he suffered. And so he got into this polarity but it is kind of funny too. <laughs> She'd hide him in closets. And his sister also, Alberto, the brother, was aligned with the father because they were they got each other, they understood. And his little sister, again, the girl, would hide him and, and, and not tell on him and, and try to protect him. So all the women were on his side and, and the men were not. <laughs> so we'll see this come up again and again and again in his life. Uh, like, uh, and for example, you know, he was such a curious little dude. Uh, if you look at a picture of him full on face, on his right cheek, you'll see this little straight uh, edge scar right in the front of his cheek. And apparently he was trying out his father's straight razor when he was five and cut himself. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. You can see that in some of his films too. Yeah, you can. scar. Yeah, he can. It's funny because I can relate because I did that when I was a kid. I mean, luckily, my father didn't have a straight razor. He had a safety razor. But I got up and I was going to be like dad and I'd put it down my cheek and I guess I, guess I really cut my face. I was about five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so that was that's kind of the basis of what his personality was like. What he said later is, I became to myself an imaginary figure of great excellence, daring, and glamour. And that was kind of uh, the personality that he saw for himself. And, and he kind of was. Unfortunately, he didn't also get the grounding to support that. So what happened was in 1906, when Rudy was only 10 years old, his father, who had been working on malaria, died of malaria. Mm. He contracted it and he died of it. Now, Rudy, ever after, either because he hated his father on some unconscious level or because his father died of, from his scientific researches, hated science. He loved gadgets. He loved gadgetry, which is, we can put that more. Machines. Machines. Yeah, that kind of, like that. That's like technology he liked. But he didn't like science. And medicine. Medicine. He really didn't like doctors and medicine either. And his father contracted this malaria and he was dying and he calls his sons into his bedside and he says, always protect your mother and be true to your country. And he takes the crucifix off the wall because they were Catholic off the wall and he clutches it and then he hands it to his son. <laughs> dramatic. <laughs> Very dramatic death. And so you know that that on some level he was like his father because he was a very he was like that. He was very dramatic and expressive. So it was a very dramatic death. And in his memory, he remembered the funeral and how his mother 
was brave and she held back her tears and she was strong and stoic and Rudy could not contain his emotions. And he cried and he wept and he was just swept away by his grief and the pain and seeing his mother so sad. and He just couldn't understand how, how people weren't crying because he could not hold it. So he's, he was really kind of emotionally incontinent and it might be because he was deeply sensitive and often deeply sensitive people, when other people are not owning their own emotions and they're not expressing their emotions, it will sweep, and also he's very young and this happens to children, the emotion will just sweep through them and take them over. This happens a lot like with children who are acting out and are you know being bad and so forth because their parents are fighting but like the parents will go to the bedroom and have like and there's anger but no one is owning it and acknowledging it and bringing it out the children will often act out the anger themselves because they get swept up into it that happens in relationships too i think yeah one, right. one partner is the really wildly emotional one and one partner is the one that's always like keeping it buttoned up and not willing to fight or not willing to engage in the same way right or just in any way Right. Yeah, exactly. Which causes the other partner then to act out even harder. Yeah. Right, exactly. So I think that that, actually, I think that had a lot to do with it, but it also trained him to become this emotional conduit, which I think he really was throughout his life. He just never built, and this is something that his mother, with boundaries, could have given him, built a way to actually control his impulsivity. But anyway, that was a really, really hard blow to the family. They had to move from the town where they, they were in, and he had to change schools. He wasn't doing that well in school anyway. And also the fact that they didn't become poverty-stricken. They were still middle-class-ish. They, they were okay. It wasn't as good as it used to be. I mean, the mother had to really watch out for money and be, be cautious and so forth. And so Rudy just went off the beam. Uh, he was unmoored. And he began acting out even worse losing it and doing terrible in school and just running wild and so forth but he did say in his mind he had this idyllic vision of his parents and he said that he saw something beautiful and sublime and that he saw for the first time a great and real love between his parents now whether that was real or not hard to say but that's what he saw so that's a really kind of a lot of mixed up feelings there with the anger and the, the, all this stuff. But that vision of his mother as this angel of perfection and love and gentleness and this idea of this perfect love between his parents became the paradigm that he was seeking in his own life to establish for happiness. You're setting yourself up for failure there, dude. It totally, and he did. That's sad. Well, we'll talk all about that. That, all, that was all real interesting. So anyway, what happened is he was sent to a boarding school to kind of help him get some structure and get, hopefully to get control of himself. Now, a lot of books say that he was sent to military school, which he was not. He was sent to a technical school. And it was the kind of school for people who are going to become engineers, who are going to, you know, that kind of stuff. But it had a kind of a military aspect in that you wore a uniform, you had regimented hours, you did marching, mm. that kind of stuff. And uh, I guess they learned horseback riding there. You know, it was okay. He didn't do great. The problem is, is he didn't like sitting in the classroom. He, again, he, it yeah. didn't solve his inability to sit still and, and pay attention. So what happened was he was bad. He was 15. He got expelled. So I go, what are we going to do with him now? And he said, well, he'd like to go to Naval College because he just really, nobody had a sense of 
He's not going to work well in any kind of military situation where there are men. And of course, that's what a lot of this was. There were men telling him what to do and ordering him around. But he loved boats and he loved sailing. And so he wanted to get into Naval College. So they took him there and he got rejected because his chest was two centimeters too small. (laughs) That's silly. Apparently, all his life he was very myopic. And he couldn't see very well, but it was the chest thing. And, of course, think about that. Chest, that's the power of the man. That's actually the man's center of weight is up in the chest area. And so it's very important, right? And so here his manliness, his masculinity was being rejected. He wasn't masculine enough, essentially, is kind of the way he looked at it and they felt about it. And here we see kind of the final important piece of the puzzle of his character kind of drops into place here in that this is like one of the first times his masculinity is not enough, not good enough. And again, this becomes a theme throughout his life. So now what are they going to do with him? So they said, okay, we're sending you to agricultural college. He was 18 when he, when they finally got him in there because from the time he was expelled to the time he went into agricultural college, he's chasing after girls. And of course they all had chaperones in those days. Women were not given that kind of free reign. So he was was very frustrated and and running around and smoking. And he became a smoker all around the rest of his life. And fast cars and just going nuts. And so they said, okay, so they sent him to agricultural college. And he liked it. I mean, he was outside. And it was more like agricultural architecture. Like Italian gardens and stuff, but it was also farming. So it sounds like kind of an interesting kind of uh, program. And he got to know animals really well, and he always loved animals and had a real kind of Francis of Assisian relationship with animals. uh, And he was like really good at handling cattle. Ten years later, when he came back and and was able to come back to Italy and visit in his success, he visited all these places, and the old guy who was at the agricultural college, remembered him and said, boy, nobody could handle a bull the way you could. Hmm. And so he he was actually very good at it. Uh, And so he actually graduated and got a certificate. Good job, Rudy. But there weren't really any jobs around easily to be found, and he wasn't looking very hard. So this was a huge problem. Also, he still was like trying to find that girlfriend at first love. Because he was... He was a skirt chaser, but he, he wanted, given everything that we just said before, he, he really liked women and he really wanted a romance. He didn't want just to, you know, be a playboy. Or yeah, to, he, he just didn't want to get laid. That really, I mean, I'm sure he felt that in his body, but in his his feelings, he was looking for an ideal of, of actual loving Congress with, with somebody, you know. And he fell in love with the school cook's daughter, Felicite, and he would go... <laughs> and serenade her with his mandolin under her window at night. Wow, classic that's, that's, stuff. That's kind of what he would do. <laughs> he ended up uh, graduating and he leaving her. and That broke his heart and he cried and he left her a note. And, oh, it was very sweet. And I, I get the, the feeling that she really wasn't like that into it as he was. But I think it's impossible for anybody to be as into it as he was when he was into it. It yeah. didn't last for long, but it was very, very powerful when he when he was there. Anyway, he was able to um, have the certificate, but he didn't find a job, so what was going to do? So he's back, chasing women. If there was a car, he'd borrow it and he'd go really fast. And he had very myopic, 
And so he would, like, run into things. And <laughs> as far as I know, he didn't ever hurt anybody, which is maybe a very big grace on him. I mean, considering how many times you've told me he crashed his car, that's pretty impressive. I know. And then he, he really hurt shouldn't himself. have been on the road, yeah. No, he shouldn't. Not without glasses. And he wouldn't wear glasses. Because, of course, in those days, glasses were for eggheads. And that meant you were less than manly. And women didn't want to wear glasses either because women meant you were ugly, which was just, it's such a weird thing. But anyway, that's how it was back then. So he was lounging around and he ended up getting some money. His mother probably gave it to him. And in 1912, he visited Paris and Monte Carlo. And that was probably really an important thing for him as an artist, even though he, at this point he wasn't considering being an actor or whatever. He had learned how to dance and he was a very good dancer and he kept learning. He never took lessons, but he really, but he, you know, he danced with people and he saw things and he picked it up. Uh, he also had learned uh, um, how to ride when he went to the technical college, apparently. I don't know. And so he learned how to do military style riding. So he was very good on horses and he just learned all kinds of physical things. And he went uh, to Paris and so he just basically hung out, spent money and he bought clothes and he's very much into clothes. I mean, this guy was a fashion plate. Everything was just chef's kiss. Perfectione. (laughs) The hat, the cane. He wore, you know, spats. The, oh, he always looked fan. Fantastic. And he would slick his hair back to this very sleek shine, which is very, very in at the time. And he just loved to go around Paris. And there was something called the Boulevardeuse. There's also something called the Flaneur. And the Flaneur is somebody who just like a really elegant guy who's not really rich, but looks kind of rich and maybe and is a little bit louche and hangs out and drinks uh, absinthe maybe and leans on light posts and watches people go by and looks at the women and, you know, it's just very elegant and charming, that kind of stuff. That's kind of what he aspired to be. And so he would, you know, be likely to see like Marcel Proust at one table and, oh, gee, over there is, maybe he saw Nijinsky. This was the year that the Ballet Russe came, which was, I was talking about how they were knocking down barriers in arts in Russia and in Russia, there was a man named Sergei Diaghilev as an impresario. He put together a dance group that just did like one summer season with dancers and choreographer named Michel Fokine that were pushing the boundaries of the old staid boundaries of ballet. You know, oh, you have to do it like this. The technique has to be this way. So there was no real freedom of expression or innovation innovation or evolution of the art. It had become very, very rigid and old. And they were knocking these down, but they couldn't really perform in Russia because all the theaters belonged to the czar and it's all imperial and... You know, that was all regulated by the conventions and the rules at the time. So they came to Paris and were performing their new groundbreaking works with this amazing dancer named Vaslav Nijinsky. And again, that's a name that rings through the ages. An amazing, amazing artist. I won't go into Nijinsky, but he may have seen Nijinsky. And Nijinsky was a great, great dancer and ended up being a great choreographer as well. Anyway, Rudy was now immersed in this artistic world with all these new visual arts and 
Art Nouveau is coming into prominence. And prominence, thank you. And and then the the impressionist music of Debussy, and he might have seen Debussy walking down the you know at a restaurant or walking down somewhere. You know, he saw the cathedrals and the museums, and you know, so even though he was just really wasting a lot of money, this wasn't a waste for him as an artist. And then he went to Monte Carlo, and for those of you that know of the casinos of Monte Carlo, he went in there, <laughs> he lost all of his money. Course. He had to write home to get money to come home. So everyone is in this family is slapping their foreheads and going, yeah. what are we going to do with this guy? I mean, it's just he's just impossible. And of course, his mother loves him and is making excuses, but she also does get that this is not good for him either. So what happened was they decided that he needed to go to the new world and try to make his own way. So when he's 18, in 1913, his mother pulls together $4,000, which is quite a lot for that time. Given that maybe somebody in a, like a regular family might earn $1,000 a year and, and they could live on that. I mean, this is, you know, this is money to, that could really get him started in something, right? So, and they, give, they buy him a second class ticket and they say, okay, you're going to go to America. And he's excited I and mean, he wants to go. So he buys himself some clothes because he's got to have nice clothes, including a really nice tux. You know, new tux. Of course, he already had a tux because he was wearing it in Paris. <laughs> and he and he gets all ready to go, and he's just so excited. And he only knows a few words of English at this time, but he speaks Italian and French, and French will take you far. And he gets on, well, he gets to the docks, and the first thing he does is he goes to the ticket office, and he exchanges his second-class ticket and buys a first-class ticket. <laughs> this is Rudy. This is Rudy. And he gets on that ship. Buh, buh. and he goes first class and he's dancing every night with all the ladies and he is eating the great food which he loves food he loves his food and everyone loves him everybody loves him he's, he's such a, a lively uh, charming charming guy and the thing is is we cannot put too fine a point on the fact that that he loved older women because he loved his mother so when he would meet an older woman, he immediately was gallant and courtly and hold chairs. And, and he actually listened to them and actually held real conversations and really cared about their comfort and happiness. And so, you know, so who doesn't love that, you know? And plus, he loved beautiful young women a lot. And uh, he met a woman on the ship and, and she, uh, she called him a smart young masher in a jaunty cap. <laughs> masher. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> and um, so basically he ended up, uh, you know, coming to the United States and he doesn't know anybody at all. I guess he did meet somebody on the, on the ship who said, oh, there's this great place where you can, you know, it's inexpensive. You can get a room and then there's these places you can eat that are. And so does he do that? No, he doesn't do that. He goes right down to what the most expensive hotel in New York City, rents a suite with a bedroom, a parlor, and a private bath, and then he goes to Maxim's, and his first meal in the New World is lobster and champagne. <laughs> That's Rudy. <laughs> so really begins incredible. His, so begins his sojourn in the New World. <laughs> and we'll end this here, and we'll see you next time for part two.